0: The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Now, here's Pastor Chris Rollins. Welcome to Coastal Community Church, I'm Pastor Chris. Uh, Great to have you with us today. Man, what a beautiful uh, weekend here in Charleston. uh, Man, yesterday, goodness, uh, felt like spring, or felt like late spring already, and uh, it cooled off a little bit last night and this morning, but uh, what a beautiful weekend. Uh, We are in week two of this series that we started last Sunday uh, called um, United We Stand, and uh, it's about unity. And if there's ever a time in our culture, in our world, where um, this is an important topic, uh, it's now. And uh, so we want to uh, encourage you today. Last week was all about kind of big picture, a little bit, as far as unity goes. And we talked about uh, this idea of uh, that we have a higher calling and a deeper loyalty than any of the causes of this world, that we're, as believers, we're called to unity. We're called, Jesus prayed uh, that we might be one so that the world would know uh, that God had sent him into the world. And uh, so we talked about that last week, that the litmus test for being a believer uh, is not how you voted in any election. Uh, it's how we love one another. And uh, today, uh, we're gonna bring it down a little bit uh, narrow focus today And uh, because if unity works in the world, uh, it's gotta first work in our homes and our families. Uh, but I wanna, uh, before we get into that today, I wanted to uh, uh, just uh, mention a couple of things that are in your bulletin today uh, that you don't miss. Uh, one is uh, beginning uh, this coming Wednesday, March the 1st, we are participating uh, in a month-long fast, actually a 40-day fast uh, leading up to Easter Sunday. And many of you, depending on your church tradition, are, are familiar with uh, fasting during a season of Lent or Ash Wednesday. Uh, we're participating in, in a fast here together as a church. And we're, a fast basically is where you, uh, as a believer, uh, just pick something in your own life that you could deny yourself Physically for a period of time, uh, 40 days. And uh, that will take us up, that would begin March 1st, and it'll end on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And, um, But deny yourself something physically so that you could uh, focus yourself and kind of dial in a little bit spiritually. And during those 40 days, as you, you know, that that physical thing comes up, it's it's to serve as a reminder uh, to focus spiritually, maybe to send you into the word or to prayer, uh, to fellowship, those types of things. And you might choose anything. I mean, in fact, typically, here's my answer for People say, Pastor Chris, what should I fast? Well, when you start talking about a fast, and and uh, you know, we say you know we're challenging you to do a fast. It's the thing in your mind that you thought of, you said, oh, I wonder if I should fast that. That's probably the thing that you should probably be fasting, okay? Um, And that for you, and it could be, you know, a a wide variety of different things, you know, um, I don't think we have to set the the thing that you have to fast. For you, it could be television, it could be uh, social media, uh, it could be food related, it could be uh, sugar, uh, caffeine, uh, junk food, it could be time that you're going to maybe get up a half an hour earlier or something and devote that to prayer during those 40 days. And what we're hoping is that as a church, it's going to uh, focus us and uh, that God's just going to bless uh, as we get prepared for Easter, as we pray for all the people that we're reaching out to. Speaking of all the people that we're reaching out to, last Sunday was amazing. We kicked off that uh, the series United We Stand. as a holiday weekend, but we had a lot of people here. And if you'll notice back at our one sign, uh, we've now turned on four more lights here at Coastal. And um, uh, for those of you who have no idea what that means... Uh, there are actually 52 lights in that little sign back there, and uh, each light represents one person uh, coming to know Christ, uh, giving their life to Jesus, stepping over the line of faith. And last Sunday we had four people. I took a spiritual survey last week, and uh, we had four people that wrote the letter B. Uh, in other words, they said they indicated that they uh, gave their life to Christ uh, last week, that they uh, that they believed for the first time last Sunday. So we're excited about that. Uh, the amazing thing is, here's what's really cool. So we actually already have uh, 26 lights. Uh, lit out of uh, you know fifty two, so we are halfway there, and it's uh, it's February. So uh, anyway, that's awesome. Woo, yeah. Um and uh, somebody said, well, what are we going to do we're going to light all 52 lights? Well, first of all, we're, we're going to keep going, obviously. We're going to keep, uh, you know, keep reaching people, uh, but we're going to throw a huge party, and I'm, I'm excited about that. We're going to start planning that uh, soon. Hey, the other thing I want to draw your attention to, there is a little uh, an insert in your bulletin about a new ministry that we're starting here called Embrace Grace. And uh, our church is all about love and grace and and, uh, and reaching out to people. And just take a, a minute to uh, take a look at that and make sure you know uh, what's happening here. Um, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, Harry and uh, Blanche, uh, I like that, those names, Harry and Blanche, they were married uh, in 1900, okay, so a long time ago. And uh, by the year 1928, you ready for this? They had 16 children. Wow, yeah, 16 kids. Well, uh, in 1917, Harry uh, went to work for Milton Hershey's dairy farm in Pennsylvania, and a couple of years later, he moved over to work at Hershey's. What? Anybody know? The Chocolate Factory, that's right, yeah. Uh, Anybody been there? Anybody been to Hershey? Woo, wow, lots of people have been up there, okay. Uh, Well, he admired his boss and uh, decided to go, uh, kind of make a go at making his own candy. And, uh, you know, he looked up to his boss, but this is a really sweet deal, sweet deal, and uh, decided to go out on his own. And uh, so in 1923, he started his own candy company uh, in his basement. And uh, his company was, you know, mildly successful, and he sold a variety of different candies out of his home. And, uh, but in 1928, uh, he developed a new candy that was an immediate success. In fact, by the beginning of World War II, Harry decided to discontinue all the other candy that he was working on and just concentrate on this one. Now, today, his candy has a global annual sales of over 2.6 billion dollars, billion with a B. It is ranked number two uh, in the candy bar category, and enough of them are produced each year to feed one to every person in the United States, Japan, Europe, Australia, China, Africa, and India, okay? Not bad for a candy made by a Pennsylvania dairy uh, man uh, who decided to name it after himself. His full name is Harry Burnett. Anybody know? Reese, Harry Burnett Reese. I personally believe that Reese's peanut butter cups are one of man's greatest inventions. Um, Here we go. So how how many of you like Reese's? I can see by your applause. Okay, wow, very good. Well, um, here's the best part. These, uh, you know, miraculous, godly candies are primarily made from just two ingredients. Of course, what? What are they? chocolate and peanut butter. I mean, some of you, I mean, like you're seriously, when I said fasting, you knew you had to fast chocolate, right? Because you're a chocoholic, right? Or or how many of you are like addicted to peanut butter? I mean, you're just a peanut butter fan. Okay. And I, by the way, I realize some of you have peanut butter allergies, so sorry about that. But anyway, here's the cool thing about a Reese's peanut butter cup though. You can't just say, you know, well, I'm just going to eat the chocolate. Or I'm just going to eat the peanut butter. And I know some of you are like, well, I can kind of, you know, bite off the sides. Well, yeah, you could do that just for a little bit. But at some point, what happened is that when they, when they took these two ingredients and put them together, they ceased being, you know, chocolate and peanut butter, and they became one, didn't they? United <laughs> together, something new, something beautiful in fact, I think that's a pretty good illustration of marriage, right? You know, God takes two uh, separate, distinct people and, and, and he joins them together uh, and the two become what? One, something new, something beautiful. In fact, today, because of that little story, we actually have Reese's peanut butter cups to give away to everybody on your way out this morning. So... <laughs> There you go. Now, some of you are not going to be able to see. I'm just going to throw that one out there. and There you go. Somebody gets it. Okay. Um, Follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 19. You're wondering, where are we going with this, Pastor Chris? Let's see. Uh, Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Now, what scriptures? What is he talking about? He's actually referring to uh, Genesis chapter 2, the Old Testament, and the creation account of Adam and Eve. Listen to this. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one separate them. For God has joined them together. And you might have even had something like that uh, read at your wedding. Now, here's my question today. How? How does God do that? I mean, how does he take two separate, distinct people who commit themselves to each other in marriage and then make them one, or as the Bible describes it, one flesh? And then really for our purposes today, I think more miraculously, how in the world is that sense of oneness, that sense of unity maintained? You know, how is that lived out day by day uh, in your home, with your spouse, with your family? Because again, if we're going to you know be united, we stand in the world. Let me tell you something. It has got to start, it's got to happen in our homes, in our family. Let, Let me explain. How does that happen? Now, I think it might sound cliche. But I want to explain this today. I really believe that the key to that type of unity, to that type of oneness in our homes, in our families, that the key to that is Jesus. It's Jesus. Now again, I know that might sound cliche, but here's what I mean by that. Jesus living in me and Jesus living in you. Okay? Jesus, in other words, living in you and Jesus living in your spouse. Now, the Bible calls what I just kind of explained just said, I know kind of and it sounds a little cliche, but the Bible calls that, I believe, the spirit-filled life, OK? Day by day, walking with Jesus and giving him more and more control of every area of our life. That's the spirit-filled life. And let me tell you something when. When that is in you and that's in your spouse, that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul talks about this spirit-filled life right before his discussion on marriage and husbands and wives, in this classic uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and right before he quotes this exact same passage from Genesis chapter 2 that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 19. In fact, that passage is found throughout the entire Bible, from creation to the gospels to the epistles, all throughout the Bible. I think he does that for a reason, because I really believe that the key to unity in our homes, the key to this type of Of one flesh, becoming one flesh in in both husband and wife. It is living this spirit filled life together, both husband and wife. Follow along as I read this description of the spirit filled life. Again, right before he talks about marriage and family and and, uh, becoming one flesh, it's in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Listen to this. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. And you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, he starts off this uh, little discussion here about Spirit-filled living by saying we're not to get drunk on wine. Instead, we're to let the Holy Spirit fill us, control us. Now, on a quick side note, let me just say this. As far as drinking and relationships go, for some of you, the best thing you could do for your marriage the best thing you could do for your family, the best thing you could do for your relationships is to quit drinking, okay? Now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that drinking is a sin. It's not, okay? Drunkenness is a sin. But you're missing the point of this passage. The real issue here, it's control, okay? It's control. In other words, if you and I put any substance in our bodies, anything to the point that the Holy Spirit is no longer in complete control. You have crossed a line, and you are sinning. Now, for some of you, though, your drinking has consistently led to problems in your relationships. You say things, you do things that you would never, ever, ever do if you weren't under the influence of alcohol, and it's damaged your relationship. Now, if that's you, stop. Stop. Now, if you can't, that's a sign of a greater problem. You are an alcoholic and you need help. And let me tell you something. I want you to hear this from my heart. There are more people than I can count in this church who will go with you to an AA meeting today. That, that I'll lock arms with you and, 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 and do life with you and step through that process, myself included. Now, back to our passage. What does it mean then to live a spirit-filled life? I think he tells us right here, okay? I think he gives us some descriptions of what this looks like. And let me, let me kind of give a little side note here, though, to our, our single adults. Let me tell you something. The Bible is very clear that as believers in, in this type of intimate relationship, that we are not to be, you know, the term that, you, that gets thrown around a lot is unequally yoked. I would say it's even greater than that. I, th- I think it's that you've got to find someone that you are spiritually compatible with. But it starts, it begins with, are they spirit-filled? Do they live day by day by giving more and more control of their life, over to Jesus. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we're not even to go out to eat with somebody who claims to be a believer but is involved in unrepentant sin. And he he lists a whole bunch of, one of which is sexual sin. In other words, if if you're dating somebody and they're pressuring you to go past the line that that you think is is biblical, pressuring you sexually, and they claim to be a believer, the Bible says you drop them like a a hot potato and don't even go out to eat with them, okay? Okay? But this, I believe, is what he's saying here. So what does it look like, though, for someone to be spirit-filled? What are the uh, descriptions? What are the characteristics of these people? Number one, spirit-filled people are joyful people, are joyful. In verse 19, you know, I know when you read that, you're thinking, oh, are we supposed to be walking around singing all the time? Because it says, you know, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, always singing, making music. But he says, always make music where? It's to be made where? Look back at that verse. In your heart, in your heart. In other words, before it comes out of your mouth, it's gotta be in your heart. We're to be people of joy. So let me ask you, how's the the joy barometer in your life? You know, are you a person of joy, making music to the Lord in your heart? Number two, spirit-filled people are thankful people. Verse 20, he says, always giving thanks for everything. Is that you? Is that the person you're dating are they full of joy? Are they full of gratitude? People who are allowing the Holy Spirit to control their lives. Man, let me tell you something. They are grateful, thankful people. Thank you are words that are spoken frequently. You know, they recognize that everything they have is from God and they regularly give thanks to God and, and thanks to the people around them. It's a mark of of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, that you're full of joy, that you're full of gratitude. And then there's a third evidence in verse 21. Spirit-filled people are submitted people. In other words, these are people who put others ahead of themselves. They give preference to others. They're they're servants. They, They have a servant's heart. Now, what in the world does any of that have to do with marriage and relationships? In a word, let me tell you, everything, Everything. I've said it over and over and over again. Listen to me. If you are walking in the Spirit and your spouse is walking in the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will not wage war against the Holy Spirit. In fact, just the opposite. I'm not saying there's not going to be conflict, there will be, but listen to this. The Holy Spirit will find a way to work it out with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will get along with the Holy Spirit, will cooperate with the Holy Spirit. That's why here at Coastal, we are constantly pointing people to Jesus. And let me tell you something, single adults, that's why it's so important that the person you end up with is a Spirit-filled Christian that has that is, that is given their life to Christ and is growing in that relationship and giving more and more of themselves daily to the Lord. Now... What does it mean, then, to submit to to one another in marriage out of reverence to Christ, in that type of relationship? How do we do that? Again, the answer is Jesus. It is a picture of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, being willing to lay down his life for those that he loved. It's this attitude of love and submission and humility toward other people. It's being willing to humbly lay down your rights and our needs for the benefit of others, expecting nothing in return. And let me tell you something. It is that attitude that can change your marriage, that can change your family, and change your relationships, and bring about a sense of unity in your home. Now today, I want to give you three words this this morning that I believe have got to be spoken over and over and over again in your home to create this attitude of unity. And uh, I think these three words describe this idea of mutually submitting to one another. And I'm telling you that if you will put this into practice, if you will regularly practice these words, it, it can bring unity in your home, oneness in your relationship. And I also believe, by the way, that this is a good barometer for, you know, can these words be spoken in the relationship that you have if you're dating somebody, okay? Here they are. The first one, the first three words, and these are in groups of three, are words of of honesty. Here it is. I was wrong. Everybody say that out loud this morning. I was wrong. Say it. For some of you, it's the first time you've ever said that, isn't it? I know. Like, wow, it is a miracle. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for making him or her say those three words. But it takes honesty, doesn't it, to admit that. Now, the truth is, everybody in this room, we're all sinners, we all make mistakes, we we all struggle with sin and selfishness. And one of the biggest barriers in a relationship, one of the biggest barriers to to marital happiness is this attitude of, well, it's not my fault. You know, it's all their fault. Now, left unchecked, that begins to fester and you develop special x-ray vision where you can only see every little flaw in that other person. And you become blind to your own. Here's a a typical scenario. Couples having conflict, okay? They've fought, they've argued, and they both become quiet. And they are steaming on the inside. Some of you said, Pastor Chris, that was my morning this morning. (laughs) Anyway, um, and neither of them have enough courage to say, I am sorry. I was wrong. Let me tell you something. That is a marriage. That's a relationship that is going to suffer. Here's why. In Ephesians 4, just a little bit earlier, the Apostle Paul makes three statements about unresolved anger. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Okay, that's number one. Then he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's two. And then number three, he says, don't give the devil a foothold. There's a lot of stuff in there about anger. Okay, first of all, it's not angry to be you know, I mean, it's not a sin to be angry. And then this idea of letting the sun go down. And then the foothold. The foothold, though, is something that I don't think some of you aren't really clear on. What, a foothold about what? Okay? A foothold about unresolved anger that you took into the night and the next day and the next, becoming more and more frustrated, more bitter all the time. Listen, when you don't address relational conflict in your relationship, in your home, in your marriage, in your dating relationship, if you don't have the ability to do that, okay, humbly, quickly, you know what you are doing? You are inviting Satan to come into that relationship. That's exactly what the, what, what the word foothold means. It, it, it literally means a, a, a place to stand. A, a, a spot, literally, to to stand in that relationship. And if you give the, the enemy... Remember, who is our true enemy? It's not Trump. It's not Clinton. Who's the true enemy? Satan. Oh, my gosh, you've forgotten that already. Okay. Satan is the true enemy. Okay? If... If you allow him a place to stand in your life, you won't have to invite him twice. He will step into that spot and he will bring bondage into your relationship. He will will distort your thinking. And and Peter, uh, later in scripture, uh, refers to Satan, our enemy, as a roaring lion seeking who he's going to devour. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus calls Satan, we talked about this last week, a thief. And remember, a thief comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. That is Satan's agenda for your home. Steal, kill, destroy for your family, for your marriage, for every person in this room. Why? Why does he want a foothold? So that he can better leverage, he can gain some leverage in your relationship to, this is what we talked about last week, to divide and conquer. Conquer. That is his strategy. God creates. He unites. The devil, his specialty is to divide and destroy. And he wants to destroy the unity of your marriage, the unity in your family. He wants to destroy the unity in this church. He wants to destroy the unity in in every friendship that's, that's represented here today. And so, when you fail to address relational conflict quickly, basically what you're doing is you are throwing out a welcome mat for Satan to come in and climb up all over your life and that relationship. Don't do that. Instead, here's what happens in a healthy relationship, in a healthy marriage. Now... When there's conflict, and again, there will be conflict. You know, the sign of a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship, a strong marriage, is not that you never, you know, have disagreements, conflict, arguments. No, it's that you are willing to go through those things, through the tunnel of chaos, and come out on the other side stronger. Now, and when both of you are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you realize that you're not gonna let the sun go down with that totally unresolved. Now, depending on the issue, you might not be able to get all that straightened out in a quick you know, 10-minute conversation before bed, but you could start moving in that direction. And it might be as simple as, as looking each other in the eye and saying something like this. Honey, I was wrong. And I am sorry. And uh, I I want you to know, and and, you know, let me me say this. When you're upset with each other, like, stop kicking one another out of the bed or the bedroom and making somebody sleep on the sofa. Like, don't do that. There are times I do believe that You know, where maybe a a couple, maybe trust has been so uh, broken that uh, it requires, you know, a a separation for a time where there's a plan. But all separation does is bring more separation. You know, you ought to be able to look your spouse in the eye and say, you know what? I am mad as fire right now. And I know you are too. But I love you. And I'm committed to you. And we're going to figure this out. We're going to work through this together. And I know I played a part in it, and we're going to talk some more later. Like, some of you need to do that. And we say this, single adults, if you're in a relationship where you can't talk about conflict, get out now. Here are the next three words. They represent words of humility. Please forgive me. Turn to your neighbor right now and say that out loud. Please forgive me. Go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do it. Some of you are like, I'm not going to do that, Pastor Chris, because <laughs> you don't have the spirit of the living God living. No, anyway. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Chris, aren't those the same thing? I mean, you know, you know isn't admitting you're wrong the same thing as asking for forgiveness? Nope, it's not. It's not. I mean, sometimes you can be proven to be wrong to the point that you can't deny it. All right, I was wrong. You know, what's the big deal? Well, unless you're willing to humbly seek forgiveness, that relationship is probably headed for deeper conflict. In fact, the second set of words is an expression that you're genuinely sorry and that you want the relationship to be healed. Even even more than that, it means, get this, here's another gospel word, that you're willing to repent. You're willing to repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? It means change. Change. Forgiveness, repentance, they're all about change. A change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, and then a change of life. It's a godly sorrow in response to our sin. And it causes us to literally turn away from it, to walk away from it. In fact, that's what Paul was describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to this. Godly sorrow brings what? What's the word? It brings what? Read it. Repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, notice he mentions two kinds of sorrow in that verse. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is all about you know, being sorry for the pain that you've caused yourself. Okay, it's regretting the fact that you did something wrong and now it's messing up my life. You know, worldly sorrow is all about me. The focus is on me. I got caught and it's causing me pain. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is different. It's one thing to be sorry for the pain that you caused yourself. It's quite another thing to be concerned about the pain you caused somebody else and God. And so true repentance is being sorry, not just about the fact that you screwed up and you're messing up your life, but that you hurt your God and you hurt somebody else that's close to you. And as a result, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna turn away from that and I'm going to change. Listen, if you're, if you're dating somebody and they're never wrong. And when they finally do admit that they're wrong, but it's just about them, I'm telling you, that's a sign of danger. You know, but back in the 70s, there was a terrible movie called Love Story. Oh, it was awful. Don't waste your time. Anyway, but there was a really famous line in that movie that you might remember, and it's it's been used, you know, over the years. Love means never having to say You're sorry. That's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Are you serious? Love absolutely means you have to say you're sorry. Okay? I mean, you have to say, I was sorry, I was wrong, forgive me. Love means you say that over and over and over again. Here's the final set of three words that are going to bring unity and oneness back into your home. Into your relationship, they're words of healing. I forgive you. Now, obviously, those first six words typically are spoken by one person to the other, um, and these are spoken by the one who has been hurt. How about it? Anybody in this room ever been wounded by the hurt, hurtful actions of somebody else? Yeah, we all have. Ephesians four thirty-two. Listen to this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ God forgave you. Man, how in the world do we do that in a relationship? Let me give you some descriptions of what forgiveness is and what it's not. First of all, let's talk about what it's not. Uh, number one, it's not excusing. It's not. It's not, you know, forgiveness is not saying, well, it's okay. It's, it really wasn't that big of a deal. No. Many times it it, it is. It's a huge deal. It's so big that Jesus died for it. You know, we we don't dishonor the cross of Jesus by excusing or diminishing something that that actually required the death of Jesus, our sin. So it's not making excuses. Uh, Number two, forgiveness is not pretending well, I just kind of pretend it never happened. You know, I don't let it affect me. I just, I just you know, I, I put all issues. We just sweep them under the rug in our family, right? Listen, it's not pretending that it didn't hurt. It can still hurt badly. And if it does hurt, let me say this, that's not, that doesn't mean that you've necessarily failed to forgive them. You know, some of you have had some horrible, horrible, hurtful things done to you. And I think it would be so cruel to say, well, if you've forgiven them, it shouldn't hurt you anymore. No, it it can, and many times it does. It's a process. Number three, forgiveness is also not forgetting. You know, we've all heard the phrase, you know, forgive and forget, or I'll forget, but I can't forget. Um, You know, it's, it's misleading, I think, because forgiveness really isn't the same thing as Forgetting. You know, forgiving doesn't automatically erase the memory of what happened. I think you can still forgive somebody and you still need to work through the pain. So what is it? What is forgiveness? Let me give you three quick things. One, forgiveness is releasing. Releasing. Releasing what? My right to retaliate. My right to settle the score. When you forgive somebody, you are saying... You do not owe me anything anymore. Forgiveness is also costly. It is. It cost God the life of his son. Jesus paid for our forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection, the price of our sin. He bore our debt, all of it. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. We deserve death. But we have been released from that debt if we put our faith in Christ because he paid for it all. And so now when we read that we are to forgive each other just as in Christ God has forgiven us, we actually release each person from the debt that occurred when they hurt us. We let it go. We write it off. We forgive them just as we've been forgiven. You say, Pastor Chris, that is costly. Yeah, it is. It costs God everything. Yeah, but PC, I've been hurt deeply. You know, I've been wronged. How do I do that? You know, I think one part of the process... It's just by realizing how much you really have in Christ, how, how wealthy you are, how much you've been forgiven, how much you have. Let, 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 me, let me explain. Can, can you imagine having the wealth of, uh, of Bill Gates? Bill Gates' net worth is around 86 billion dollars. How many of you would be happy with like one billion? You, know, you don't have to have all 86, you know. I mean, think about it for a second. If you had a billion dollars in the bank, how hard it would, would it be to forgive a hundred dollar debt? I mean, somebody owes you a hundred bucks and they can't pay and, and you're sitting on a billion. I don't think you lose sleep over that debt. I mean, it might not even register on your, on, on your radar. I mean, you know, what's a hundred bucks when you got a billion? However, let me ask you this. If you're struggling to survive and you got nothing in the bank, then it can be a challenge for you to even forgive 10 bucks to, for a friend, Right? I mean when you got nothing. So here's the question. How much do you have? In 2 Corinthians 8 9 it says, For you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for you, for your sakes, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become what? Rich. Now, if you think that has anything to do with money in your bank account, you've been listening to too much televangelism and prosperity teachers. It's got nothing to do with that. Let me ask you, how, how much do you have? I mean, how much do I have? How, are you kidding me? Listen to me. My father owns it all. You know, I, I am an heir to the creator of the universe. He gave up his one and only son son, to forgive me of everything. It cost me nothing, but it cost him everything. You see, when you truly understand your own debt, and, and that it took the death of the Lord of the universe to save you, and that you are the benefactor of all of that, if you really understand that in your heart of hearts, you are able to freely give away what you have freely received. Because in Christ, you are rich beyond belief. Can't you see why it's so important to live by the Spirit in this, the most intimate of all relationships where husband and wife are united together and become one? Number three, forgiveness is also liberating. It'll set you free. It's liberating to be forgiven, but man, it's truly liberating to forgive. Hebrews 12 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it, listen to this, that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The Bible describes bitterness uh, as a weed, In fact, in Greek, it literally means pointed and sharp and cutting. In other words, unforgiveness, bitterness, it'll cut your insides to ribbons. It makes you resentful, critical, judgmental. It is a spiritual cancer to your soul and to your relationships. And if that's where you're at today, you've got to give that to the Lord you've got to let that go and be set free. Decide for yourself today, I don't want to be locked in this prison any longer. You see, that's what it looks like to lead a spirit-filled life. And if you're not experiencing that oneness that, that, that Jesus talked about, from the very beginning of time, from one end of the Bible to the other. I'm telling you, these words aren't being spoken regularly in your home. You know, you want, you want a better relationship with your kids? You want, then these words of honesty and humility and healing have got to be spoken. And, and again, single adult, listen to me. If these words aren't regularly a part of your relationship that you're growing with this other person, then it's quite possible you're in the wrong relationship. Let me tell you something, this is why we point people to Jesus. This is why we point people to Jesus, because you want want to bring unity to your marriage, to your relationship. You practice saying and using these nine words, I was wrong, please forgive me, and I forgive you. Maybe you're here today, and you've never you've never asked for forgiveness from God. And today, you would like to be spirit-filled. You'd like to come home. Listen, it is as simple and yet as beautiful as a prayer. Some of you are confused uh, about this process because you have you've confused religion with coming to know Christ. Christ. Religion is you trying to clean up your act before you are, you know, good enough to, you know, for God. Problem with that is you and I can never be good enough. And let me tell you what it's going to lead to. It's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead eventually just to anger and rebellion because why would God expect you to do something you could never do in the first place? And you think it's all about, you know, a checklist and you can never check enough boxes. It's got nothing to do with religion. It's a a relationship. And it starts this this very same way by saying, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And you know what? If, If you will say those first six words to God, he will say those last three to you. I forgive you. You've been listening to a message from Pastor Chris Rollins of Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal, or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.